This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. What role does philanthropy serve in making and sustaining our communities? How has philanthropic giving created opportunities for historically marginalized groups to access the mainstream of American life? Marcus and I will explore these and other questions on today's show. Stay tuned, and we'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. So happy to be here with you all again. Have you in the audience? And I'm really, really happy once again to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how are you doing, brother? It's good to be here. You know, I'm looking forward to kind of revisiting um, a previous conversation in the sense that we had around the whole issue of philanthropy and what that means. That's right. We've been talking about this quite a bit, and it it keeps coming up, especially in my work a lot. Mm. Um, You know, people know, and I'm getting uh, teased about this quite a bit now that I'm always mentioning Alexis de Tocqueville's name. (laughs) And Alexis de Tocqueville in his his book, Democracy in America, addresses, in a way, doesn't use the word philanthropy, Mm -hmm. but he does talk about how Americans kind of came together, that one of the unique features of American society was how Americans came together to kind of collaborate with each other in these independent associations to actually get things done in community. Yeah, and I, you know, when I think about philanthropy, um, my my mind goes immediately to resources, Mm -hmm. right, Um, and decisions to, um, decisions to earmark resources and then utilize resources in very sort of intentional strategic ways that Mm -hmm. ideally I would think um, are intended to constructively impact society. Um, And I I would also add that I think that I think that philanthropy need not be limited to monetary resources. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it could also include intellectual resources. It could include political resources. You know, Um, I think that it would be um, perhaps useful for us to, to broaden what we, the kinds of resources we, we have in mind when we think about philanthropy. Right, and how we think of just about philanthropy in general. Yeah. You know, I, you know, you hear the word philanthropist. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I studied the late 19th century when, you know, America was industrializing mm-hmm. uh, the Industrial Revolution. You look at the robber barons, and then some of these guys, kind of like Andrew Carnegie, you know, mm-hmm. after they've made these large sums of money, then they begin to use it to try to better communities in a way. So they're seeing as these big philanthropists, yeah. John D. Rockefeller. And I think that some people, when they hear this word philanthropy, they think in these larger terms. But this, as you're talking about in, in enlarging our view of what philanthropy yeah. is and what yeah. a philanthropist is, yeah. would actually get us beyond thinking about these big names. Yeah, and also I would just, I would just add, I think that um, one of the interesting things about uh, philanthropy and capitalism like in, in a capitalist society is that I think that because in my view, capitalism kind of requires um, a have not class. Um, mm-hmm. It also sort of makes philanthropy a necessity. Right. And so, so persons who have, who have managed through whatever means to enrich themselves um, are in a position then to, 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 to operate as philanthropists or right. to operate philanthropically. Um, in a way that, that may, you know, hide the way that they acquired the wealth in the first That's place. Right. So, so I think that philanthropy in some senses is um, maybe a kind of um, byproduct of of a capitalist 
the economic system. It, it, it really is. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and you can't help but Maybe. see that in the late 19th century, too, what's oh, going yeah. on. Oh, yeah. And this raises certain questions about labor and how labor is actually compensated yeah. for the services mm. that it brings to the table. Um, these have been issues that the government has had to step into to help regulate these issues and address these issues. Marcus, I'm also curious when we think about philanthropy, <clears throat> is there a difference between philanthropy and charity? Yeah. You know, people have an issue with charity, mm. you know, mm. this historically in this country, especially because of the influence, I believe, of rugged individualism. Mm. Uh, people don't like to see themselves yeah. Yeah. as having to accept charity. So yeah. is there a difference between these two? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I perhaps um, I, I do know that in my own mind, when I think about charity, um, I think about um, resources allocated to alleviate uh, inequality, mm -hmm. um, economic inequality, poverty, etc. But philanthropy, it seems to me, need not be need not target poverty. So, for, like, so, so I can imagine, for example, a, a philanthropist giving money to build a new educational institution mm -hmm. or um, to address some social issue or some social need or or to, or to create something new. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with poverty or, or inequality or, or, or something of that nature. So um, I think that it's possible to imagine um, a difference between the two. But uh, but I, I can also imagine the two being defined in very similar ways. Right. right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll kind of <clears throat> explore this with our guest today. And, you know, one thing I want to do is we end this segment and we go out. You know, I love these quotes. And it was a quote by Desmond Tutu that yeah. I found that I really loved. And mm -hmm. someone who I believe, you know, in his own way was very very, very philanthropic with his with his intellect with with his time and he once said do your little bit of good where you are it's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world and I really believe that he really captures what we think about and what we're trying to talk about here when we talk about the philanthropic spirit mm -hmm. so Marcus and I are going to step out and we'll be back with our guest in just a moment Well, again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. Again, glad to have you all here in the audience with us. And this is an interesting topic that Marcus and I are talking about right now about philanthropy. And we've had this top this discussion before with other guests, but we're really excited to come back to it again. Glad to have here in the studio with us someone who I consider a friend who I met a while back. But we have Miss Marilyn Ball here on the show. And Marilyn, we just want to welcome you to the show. Well, thank welcome you. Marilyn. Thank yeah. you, Darren. And, and thank you, Marcus. Uh, thank you for taking the time. And, Mar um, and Marilyn is a marketing specialist. Uh, she has a company here in Asheville, Asheville called 12 Marketing. She is also an author, and it was in her role as an author that she and I met each other. She was working on a book about Asheville that looked at philanthropy really here in Asheville. The title of that book was called The Rise of Asheville, An Exceptional History of Community Building. And she's also a radio host herself. She has her own show, and she may talk a little bit more about that. But Marilyn, again, welcome to the show. And where I would like to be Again, I'd like to begin with that book that you wrote a few years back called The Rise of Asheville. And what was it that inspired you to write this book? And you use this word exceptional. Um, 
And what was it that you found that was so exceptional about this community we call Asheville? Well, thank you, Darren. I actually moved to Asheville in 1977. So back in that time, people coming here were, it was still somewhat of a pioneering kind of town, even though there was, a, a thr- mm. at one time, had been a very thriving downtown area, a lot of businesses. But things were in decline. There had been... Um, the depression, of course, and the city trying to pay off their mm-hmm. loan and their debt, and a lot of the downtown buildings, these beautiful Art Deco buildings, had been in decline. Uh, but there was this sense when we came here to Western North Carolina, and then specifically to Asheville, um, of the the people of Appalachia. We we really felt, and you know, back then we were all kind of homesteaders looking to get off the grid. We wanted to have a, a place to raise our kids and just, uh, we were coming out of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. There was a lot going on at that time, and we wanted to find a place where we could really settle in and, and create community. And there already was a community here, uh, the people of Appalachia. They'd been here for you know generations. They were working the earth. They were you know gardening and raising chickens and we loved all of that we wanted that lifestyle for ourselves and over time the the people who lived here and the people who were just moving here looking for that sense of value uh, came together there was a lot going on there was also not a lot going on Mm -hmm. so when i over all the years that I've been in marketing and advertising and uh, working in this community, uh, a couple of years ago I was at a, a dinner party and there were a lot of people from out of town who had just moved here. Uh, they were entrepreneurs and starting their own companies and they were talking about Asheville as if they had just created this community themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, look what we're doing, look what we've done. And when it was my turn to talk, I, I said, you know, I don't know that any of you really know the history of Asheville and what Western North Carolina was back in the day when I first came here in the 70s. And afterwards, people applauded. They were like, thank you so much for sharing those stories with us. Mm-hmm. And that was the impetus for me starting to realize I need to tell these stories that were happening around community building. And what was so exceptional is that the people who lived here who had had a stake in this community who had been here for generations opened their arms for the for the philanthropy of the people who were coming mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. weren't here to give charity they were here to say we want to be a part of all of mm-hmm. this how can we all work together to create something that's really great right right it, you know mayor i'm glad i'm glad you said that and i think marcus may you may share my uh, <coughs> my sensibility here yeah. about because some, we've had this conversation before it seems like Sometimes those who were here before, those native Southern Appalachian, the people of Southern Appalachia, sometimes get lost in the mix when we're talking about Asheville. Asheville is a dynamic urban space, but so much of Western North Carolina is rural in in nature. And um, do you feel that, that, that we're getting better about understanding the unique experiences of the people who were already here and that that's been incorporated into the narrative about this place much better now well of course that again is why i wanted to bring these stories to the forefront so that people wouldn't 
forget, or people might not even know, that um, there was a time when poverty and hunger was very prevalent here in this region. And one night, a bunch of people were sitting around having a potluck with, you know, the garden vegetables they had just grown in their own backyard <coughs> homestead, and said, wow, there are really a lot of hungry people here in western North Carolina, in, in Appalachia. What what can we do about that? Somebody said, well, what about that Mr. Ingle? He has a big grocery store. What does he do with all that food? And somebody said, I don't know, let's call him. And somebody picked up the phone and called Mr. Ingle and said, what do you do with all that food? And he said, we just toss it. And they said, well, what if we come and pick it up? He said, fine. All of a sudden, it was like, who has a hand truck? Who has a truck? Who has storage? Where are we going to put the food? And how are we going to distribute it to the people who need it? That became the Man of Food Bank. So when we look at the narrative of today, it's important to remember that these organizations and services that grew here to support and and assist and help and bring together our community – uh, they didn't just start yesterday because somebody gave a big fat check to uh, somebody and said, "Let's start a food bank or let's start, um, you know, let's start working with uh, artists and creating an environment for them to be able to to make their craft and and be able to sell their craft." Thus came the River Arts District. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a time when Asheville was getting ready to tear down 11 city acres of, of space right in the middle of down, right where we're sitting today mm-hmm. uh, to build a mall. And people mm-hmm. came together and said, no, we can't do that. It was almost a David and Goliath kind of story, but it was people who all came together to mm-hmm. work together. So when you talk about the narrative of today and the influx of people, and you were saying it's such an urban mm-hmm. Um, we can't forget that the history here you know, precedes all of us, mm-hmm. and it was a, we have a history here of strong, cre- courageous, brave people who came to these mountains. That's the most important part that I see sometimes missing, missing. in the narrative today. Right. Yeah, yeah, such an important <clears throat> aspect of. As you're saying, Marilyn, the, the really sort of the, the collaborative dimension of Asheville's philanthropic history. So important to think about that. Um, now, Marilyn, you've you've written um, about philanthropy in your work, um, and specifically its role in community building. In fact, this features fairly prominently in, in your book on Asheville. Could you speak a little bit about um, about why that is? Why why is it that philanthropy is, is it features so so prominently um, in your work and in how you talk about Asheville history and how you talk about community building? Well, again, I think we have to look at the history and the people who were here in Appalachia were already philanthropic. They were already giving. They uh, people were uh, barn raising. They were helping their neighbors. They had these deep, deep deep-rooted values of giving. Uh, It wasn't giving like a charity in that, uh, oh, they need help. It was, hey, let's all come together in our church Mm -hmm, or in mm -hmm. our – our community centers. Uh, let's create community together, and that way we can all kind of share mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that we're all safe and taken care of. Right. And I think that's that 
core value of philanthropy has always been here. I think it comes from the Scotch-Irish. Mm-hmm. I think it comes from the African-American community that's always been here. Uh, people working together to uh, help each other raise up. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a good way, a good segue into my next question for you, uh, Marilyn, and thinking about social change, because you've talked a lot about that as well, and how philanthropy plays a role in social change. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit more? And could you tell us also, you know, when we talk about social change, what type of change is it that we're working for? What are we working towards when we talk about this? Well, I think that when we talk about social justice philanthropy, we need to really be looking at (coughs) focusing on the root cause. What is the root cause of this social or economic or environmental injustice that's going on? And that means being able to support organizations that are really getting to the roots of the problem versus just addressing Mm -hmm. the symptoms. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you really need to work together. You need to bring everybody to the table Mm -hmm. because each and every one of us, as we come to the table, are leaders. And we... um, relinquish that leadership to the next person and the next person so that eventually all people are working together and it's all inclusive. Right. That is what I feel is the big difference. The piece of the social change. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Now, Marilyn, um, kind of building off of the point that you just made around leadership, it's really popular in, in, you know, these days to talk about collaborative leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what that term what that term means, right? So, so what do we mean when we talk about collaborative um, leadership? And and do you think that um, given that you know we live in a well, we're supposed supposedly we live in in a meritocratic society, right? Predicated upon competition. You know, we believe the competition is a healthy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see collaborative leadership fitting uh, within that kind of um, social landscape? Um, if at all. (laughs) Well, I'd like to uh, let you know that back in the day, I actually worked with children uh, Uh. in a a cooperative uh, school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so here we're talking about children as young as three and four and five years old, learning how to cooperate. Mm -hmm. You know, when Mm -hmm. everybody gets in the sandbox, we have to take turns. We all have to um, be able to uh, share. And I think as we get older, we sometimes forget what cooperation and collaboration looks like mm-hmm. because we do get into these models of competition and everything. I can remember one time having an Easter egg hunt with these little children who were all about collaboration. But as soon as you put out those eggs, boy, they were competitive. Mm-hmm. You know, one kid was getting that gold egg, and we never did that again because it was like that was people. I think by human, just in human nature, want to be competitive, mm-hmm. and I feel it's our responsibility to temper that right. and to teach people. So when I think about collaborative leadership, I think. You know, I'm a leader. We're all leaders. Um, there's work to be done. Let's all do it. Mm-hmm. And this provides something of a framework where everybody feels an equal responsibility for whatever it is that we're all working towards right. and everybody coming together. It's no different than that model in preschool. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what you just said, Marilyn, and, you know, the conversations that we're having on issues of diversity and inclusion and this word inclusion. People, people need to feel that they have a stake 
in it, right? But our history has been such that some people still feel that they have been left out, been marginalized. Um, Do you see that changing uh, today? Are we having the type of conversations that we need to have with each other to be able to kind of change that perspective? I feel in some ways we're even getting worse about that. I feel that we have to really work even harder uh, to come to the table so that everybody um, can find common ground. I think that's what's missing right now more than anything is that uh, we've become so polarized of them versus us, and that's that collaborative uh, thought and uh, perception. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if we all come together in a collection, uh, a collective intention, that here's what we have to work on to engage all of the members to make new possibilities happen and to really start to let go of that them versus us uh, uh, dialogue mm-hmm. and really look at. Where can we find common ground? Where Mm -hmm. can we find, oh, you have an opinion on this, you have an opinion on that? As I was writing my book, I came to realize that back in the 70s, when we were making this community really an intentional, collaborative community, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, people disagreed with each other, but there there was a feeling of decorum. There was a feeling of debate. There was a feeling of... You have your opinion. We have our opinion. Let's talk about it, and then let's find common ground. And that's why we were able to grow into the community that now attracts people who come here and say, oh, we don't want it that way. That's not the way it was where Mm -hmm. we lived. Mm -hmm. We have to make it different. Uh, Or you're you're taking all of the money and and not giving it to the people who need it. Well, okay, those are strong opinions, and I get it. Mm -hmm. However... We have to look at what are the facts, how can we come together to really look at what is the common purpose here, what is the good for all, Mm -hmm. and how do we find a place where we can dialogue around that, even with our extremely different opinions. Yeah, yeah. and and just to drill down a little bit more into this this question of collaboration, so we can point to examples like, for example, the International Space Station as an example of, you know, transnational global Mm -hmm. collaboration. But, you know, as Darren knows, you know, I I like to really kind of pick at at North America when it it comes to these (laughs) issues. And so my question is, in in a nation that prides itself so um, so emphatically, right, on being not only a, a democracy but a paragon democracy, an exemplary democracy, um, why do you think that this country struggles so mightily when it comes to really fostering the kind of collaborative spirit that you're talking about, right? And this is a spirit, as you, as I, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly. That is not particularly complex. I mean, it's something that may even be built into our DNA as human beings. Why then is it the case that that perhaps more so than any other nation developed, quote unquote, mm-hmm. nation state, mm-hmm. the United States really seems to, I'm going to just say it, fail for the most part when it comes to fostering a, a collaborative spirit that would invite, for example, I think more philanthropic participation mm-hmm. um, in community building. So thoughts about that? Well, I think that, um, this is just my opinion, I think this is a young country, mm-hmm. still growing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The issues are very complex. And I just don't know that um, we, I think that we tend to uh, sometimes get dictated to by 
the gross generalizations of what is the reality of things. And then you lose any kind of sense of um, understanding and, and even being able to create conversation. When things get either so simple in complex ways that people don't understand it, then they're easily swayed to take the approach of it's them versus us because they don't have the resources, they don't have the access to information, and so it becomes a wider and wider division between those who do and those who don't. Right. I think that because when you think of collaboration and you think of coming together, that's really, because it's so simple, why should it be so hard to bring people together? Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that the answer will be that each one of us has to, like Gandhi said, be the change that we want to see in the world. Right, we right. have to be able to say, I'm going to change the way that I interact and, and be more conscious of the way that I speak or judge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and on a small level, bring people in my community together. Mm -hmm. On a bigger level, maybe those people will then bring people together, and then it will become uh, a a nationwide movement. Mm -hmm. Movements take a long time. But if we each practice, because that's what it is, and say, I'm a leader, you're a leader, come to my table, two by two. And, and, you know, Marilyn, since you have written about philanthropy and community building, this Marcus and I in the opening segment of the show, we talked a little bit about the difference between or is there a difference between philanthropy and charity? I would love to get your take on that because, you know, the Southern sensibility is such that people don't want to see themselves as accepting charity. And sometimes I find in conversations that charity and philanthropy sometimes get conflated together. Do you find the same thing? And what can we do to kind of pull that apart or to tease it out a little bit better? Well, I like to think that charity in the most um, beautiful way is philanthropy that we all come from a charitable place, charitable place mm-hmm. where we want to be able to give and receive uh, in a most beautiful way mm-hmm. uh, and not have that kind of stigma attached to it that right. it's, oh, you're, you're poor, mm-hmm. so here's money to, to take care of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I feel like social philanthropy really has to focus on the root cause, so that's going to be I, the, the way that we can bridge those uh, because that's really what they are, is just right. perceptions. Right. And being in marketing for my entire career, perceptions are what make us do what yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. And Perception becomes the basis of reality, mm-hmm. and, and, and undoing that becomes really significant work. Well, I, you know, again, Marcus and I want to thank you, uh, Marilyn, for coming in here and joining us for this conversation. Obviously, this is a conversation that needs to continue. Uh, something that you just said, the root causes, that means that historical understanding is important to continuing to develop this philanthropic and collaborative spirit that, we'll, that we seem to all, we all want uh, to develop in our community. But we want to thank you for coming in. And Marcus and I want to step out for just one moment, and we'll be right back. Well, again, this has been the Waters and Harvest Show, and we want to thank Marilyn Ball for joining us to talk about philanthropy. I think this is an important conversation, Marcus, for us to continue to have. I like the way she's framing this about collaboration and 
philanthropy and its role in community building. There's so many conversations going on about the need to build community. Yeah, and just understanding that, um, as Marilyn put it, the the philanthropy, if we can call it that, I would call it that, um, as a value mm-hmm. has sort of been has, has has long been built into the cultural history of of Asheville um, and, and really of Southern right. Appalachia. So I think it's important for listeners to understand that. And I think thinking about really, philanthropy, yeah, she's done us a great service. Region. She yeah. has. She's mm-hmm. done us a great service by digging into the history. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate, as someone who's native to the region, the fact that she's she has helped us get back to understanding what was here before mm-hmm. others came into this space. So again, Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us, and we want to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on Apple Music and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter, and Marcus and I will look forward to talking with you next time. Take care.